apparently on some sort of journey to the cloud as if it were some sort of pot of gold at the end of a magical rainbow. For the data nuts, this is fairly real. We sync our audio files using cloud storage. Our editor lives thousands of miles away from Ethan and me. And the show itself is sprayed across the cloud like a set of audio jazz hands. But beyond this, how are we doing with this whole cloud thing? In this show, join the data nuts as we explore public cloud maturity across a spectrum of topics that should titillate your tinfoil top hat. Howdy, I am Chris Wall. You can follow me at Chris Wall on Twitter. With me is my co-host who sustains a high fiber diet, wink, wink, by chewing on sand cables, Ethan Banks at EC Banks on Twitter. And this is the Data Nuts podcast. You can find this and all of our shows on iTunes in your favorite podcatcher or at packetpushers.net. But Ethan, I, I, I hope you got that joke. I don't know if you normally manage. I did. I, well, I didn't even know it was a joke. I mean, it's just truth. That's just <sighs> how I eat, oh. how I roll. So. Right on. Thanks for thanks for supporting that. So let's get straight to introducing our guest, Alex Niehaus. Welcome to the show. What is it that you do? Who are you? And then let's get nerdy. Well, hi, guys. Thanks for having me on. I am a cloud architect that works in a variety of, uh, actually, two public clouds, Azure and AWS. I've been doing it for about uh, 10 years. And um, I blog at Y-O-B-Y-O-T, that's Toy Boy, spelled backwards, yabyat.com. Nice. Nice. Very nice. Very nice indeed. And uh, I want to tell the story a little bit as to how we met. I was actually scouring the interwebs for someone who had written Lambda functions in PowerShell, uh, which is, I don't know, there's not a lot out there. <laughs> it's a relatively new thing. And I stumbled upon uh, Alex's great post, AWS Lambda and PowerShell, which will be in the, in the show notes. And it got me thinking about the various services and API maturity and just a lot of things in cloud as I went through his blog. So first off, kudos on the post and the blog itself. And I, I kind of wanted to set this conversation on fire right out the gate uh, because you had a comment in the post that I kind of liked. And you were talking about the AWS PowerShell commandlets. And we've, we've talked about PowerShell a few times in the show. Uh, the first statement I think is pretty, you know, like no one's going to argue that. The PowerShell commandlets are a truly cross-system language. Cool. And the second one, that it's a language that was designed to fix the issues uh, with more cryptic and less consistent scripting languages like Bash. That's where I think maybe people will be like, I like Go or Python or whatever. Like, uh, tell us a little about your love for PowerShell. It's kind of evident on that. You know, PowerShell is an interesting language. It's clearly identified with Microsoft. And the PowerShell team will tell you that the history of PowerShell is, is a, was designed to unify all of the different management and administrative uh, capabilities that existed in the Windows platform in a, in a regular language and something that could be used um, by admins for everything from networking to uh, identity management. And so it, was, it started out probably about 10 or 15 years ago as a Microsoft-only kind of capability. But with Microsoft open sourcing .NET Core and .NET Standard, PowerShell has moved right along with that because it is a really an implementation, an administrator's implementation of uh, .NET. So by having an open-sourced cross-platform version of the core capabilities of PowerShell, the language was able to follow along very nicely. The first sort of uh, PowerShell cross-system capability was announced in 2016, and it's taken a while to mature, but it has become very, very mature. And what I particularly like about PowerShell's cross-platform nature is that it is remarkably consistent 
on top of the underlying OSs. And it has some very, very powerful concepts like the pipeline, uh, which you know Linux admins are really familiar with. You know, everybody knows how to pipe something to more. But what mm. gets piped in PowerShell are objects. And these are really .NET objects. And because they are consistent across operating systems, when you know the object, uh, you know what to do with it. So this is one of those things that I don't think Microsoft gets enough credit for, frankly, in the deep geek community. Some people still feel like they aren't really, really committed to the open source world and the way things work in the open source world. And I offer up PowerShell as proof of their commitment. It's a remarkable achievement for them. I, you know, I, I went to a meetup a couple of years ago here in Boston. I'm from the Boston area. And uh, you know, the PowerShell team was talking about how they were being very, very careful in releasing what's called PowerShell Core, PowerShell 6, so that they would not come out of the gate and not have credibility uh, with the Linux community in particular. And so I think they've achieved that. They really have achieved that. You know, if, uh, if PowerShell doesn't understand what you're trying to do, it'll pass it right along to the shell that, that might be running underneath it like Bash. So I'm a big fan because it just makes my life easier. You're not the first person, Alex, that I've heard tell that story about Microsoft being committed to, it's not just a sneaky play to get you back into the Windows ecosystem. They are truly going cross-platform and supporting wholly other platforms than their own. Oh, absolutely. And uh, interestingly, I heard this, this may be apocryphal. I don't know if this is true, but I did hear a rumor that the guy who runs the development team at AWS that produces the AWS PowerShell commandlets was at Microsoft. And, you know, that's been a very fruitful example of this true cross-platform capability. And my proof point for that is that today, AWS provides an AMI that you use to launch an instance that contains .NET Core, uh, .NET Standard, I believe, and also is preloaded with PowerShell. So it really is, you know, that's that's a custom distro of Linux designed to run in AWS's hypervisor that's using, you know, the cross-system platform capabilities of PowerShell and .NET. I think that's a pretty compelling proof point. Yeah, and it was one of the things that I wanted to bring up to kind of segue into talking about the different clouds that you work with. Specifically, we'll kick things off with Amazon. Because I, I know when I read the post, I, I didn't really expect to find much on PowerShell. It just felt like... You know, there's there's a war going on between those two, but at the same time, it's a fairly popular language. So, kind of moving forward a bit, let's 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 take that broader view on public cloud and let's talk about Amazon and your thoughts around the differentiation between the work that you do with the AWS ecosystem and that of you know Azure. Yeah, well, starting with AWS, uh, what blows me away about um, AWS and Azure, quite honestly, is that they are API only infrastructures. It doesn't matter who you are. You can be a developer, you can be a network engineer, you can be an ops guy, a storage guy, whatever you are, you're going to interact with an API whether you like it or not. And the console is itself, or the portal if you're talking in Azure terms, they really just turn around and I think out of the back end, they spit out JSON, which is the native bare metal interface for either of these cloud providers. And so what I look for when I'm thinking about the cloud is what I call API consistency in the tool sets that, that the cloud provider delivers. 
And what blows me away about AWS is that it offers remarkable API consistency across all of the languages and frameworks that it supports. So I have seen in the past, they're not perfect at this, they're really not perfect at this, but I have seen in the past on the day that a new product is announced for availability, of course, to use it, you have to be able to create an, a CloudFormation template or some JSON that would define or manage the service. But they also typically on that day also ship, you know, a new uh, .NET SDK and a new Java library and a new CLI. And almost always, almost always without exception, they almost without exception, they ship a new version of the PowerShell commandlets. And I find that very appealing because one of the things you discover is, you know, you work in the cloud all the time is that you really do need to shift tools in order to access the cloud and manage it and really take advantage of it. But you need an underlying consistency of what you're trying to accomplish. And by putting all of these frameworks on top of a consistent API, you know, Amazon has done a fantastic job of that with, a with AWS. What we're talking about here can get quite complex. What is the support like from, well, let's start with Amazon. Do they have good support to help you untangle the, the mess you can potentially get yourself into when you're dealing with the environment? Oh, yeah. I am blown away. Many, many moons ago, probably in the 12th century, I worked for IBM and, you know, I'm an old mainframer and I always thought the gold standard was IBM mainframe support because they had a process, a regular process for dealing with problems you know, woe unto you if it turned out to be a user error, it got expensive. But <laughs> if it was something that they had a problem with, they took it right, you know, they fixed it. You know, we've gotten away from that. There's a lot less rigor in the way we do things today. You know, it's sort of if it works or can you hack it into place somehow and make it work. AWS seems to have found the ability to scale their support so that when you ask a question, or have a problem, they'll do one of two things. They will help you through that problem consistently. This has been a consistent experience for me at multiple clients over the last seven or eight years, which is a remarkable thing in itself, or they'll admit it can't be done. So I just had this experience uh, two weeks ago at a client. I was working on IAM, our identity and access management uh, policy in JSON. And what I wanted to do was whitelist a specific identity. And it's fairly complicated, but it turns out that you can't whitelist a specific identity. Uh, in fact, you have to rely on the implicit deny that everything happens and allow only those that you want to access this Glacier Vault uh, to do that. I couldn't believe it. I mean, it took two weeks to get through the conversation with the support guy. But at the end of it, they said, look, this just doesn't work this way and we're not going to do it. And I got to tell you, <laughs> I appreciated it. I liked it. I thought it was cool. Let's um, kind of switch over to a bit to Azure because I know from a market cap perspective, you know, Microsoft is definitely making me think that the FANGS, you know, acronym needs to have an M somewhere in there. You know, what's your general experience working with the Microsoft Azure environment? So I think Microsoft is going to its classic playbook. I mean, anybody who's been around uh, the IT world for a decade or more knows that Microsoft doesn't always start in a strong position. But when it's a market they want, they know how to stick with it hard enough to become an eventual winner. It's fascinating to me that Microsoft has this prime directive 
around leveraging their developers and making those developers productive within the confines of the Microsoft world. And increasingly, as we were talking about before in the open source world, to play to their strength. And it is a very, you know, in, in, in the big, big global enterprises where I'm typically on an engagement team, they really, really, really play well to that strength. And that development community wants them to do exactly that. But it's going to be a tough thing for Microsoft to keep up with its growth in Azure, in my opinion. Azure's really good. Don't get me wrong. I mean, I've, I've only spent two and a half years in Azure compared to like seven or eight in AWS. I am really mightily impressed. I mean, Azure has been critiqued in that they always seem to be playing catch-up to AWS, and AWS can't seem to go a week without releasing eight or ten new features. Do you have concerns around Azure in, in, in that way? Is it Are they more difficult or, or behind as a platform when compared to Amazon? Yes, <laughs> but catching up very, very quickly. The documentation can only be described as a mess, and documentation is crucial here for all of us to learn how these systems work. I like to point out that in the summer of 2017, the Gartner Magic Quadrant pointed out doc and support as the two issues they heard from their clients in assembling the Magic Quadrant. And I think Microsoft is working on those. They, they really are, as they always do. Uh, you know, my theory is they know how to play catch up. All you have to do is look at everything else they've ever wanted desperately with the possible exception of mobile phones. You know, if they wanted mess, I competed with them in the messaging space uh, years and years ago. They destroyed all competitors in that, in that space. Uh, you know, they destroyed Sybase in database. They destroyed uh, Novell way back in the day. Absolutely. Perfect example. And so they print money with an existing business in order to fund the next business that they want. And they know that that's their MO. So, and I think that's a good thing. I, I think that's a good thing. Uh, I, I think they're going to succeed. I know they're succeeding because I see it in the clients that I work with. I'll tell you something else. For the first time, I think AWS is hearing the footsteps. And for me, the data point that makes this uh, assertion real in my mind was the keynote that AWS, it's Andy Jassy, I believe, gave at reInvent last fall. And it was the first time, it sounded defensive to me, it was the first time I'd ever heard anyone from AWS stand up and say, you know, we run more Windows workloads than anyone else. And, you know, that can only mean that they're beginning to feel the pressure from Microsoft, which is good for all of us. Uh, the other thing that I think points out that AWS is hearing those competitive footsteps uh, coming up behind them is their announcement of AWS Outpost. Because I'm telling you, mm -hmm. Azure Stack which is the on-prem version of Stack, has some serious mindshare in you know, heavily regulated industries like healthcare and banking uh, because they can, over a period of 10 years, which is how long I think it will take from a DevOps perspective, they can, over a period of 10 years, get a very consistent API for everything from apps to ops with a hybrid cloud that's on-prem. So uh, you know, don't count Microsoft out. In fact, I think we're going to have two, possibly three. I really don't know anything about Google Cloud Platform GCP, but I really think we're going to have a neck and neck race for the next decade.
I did not expect to hear an enthusiastic support story about Amazon because I don't expect to hear good support stories about any IT organization because support in this industry is almost always terrible. So it was really refreshing to hear Alex describe AWS support as being you know, really, really strong and really helpful and, and not only that, but honest. Hey, Alex, you know what? Doesn't work like that. And we're not gonna make it work like that. Sorry, buddy, you can't do what you're trying to do. T to me, that demonstrates that AWS understands how to win the mindshare of a technical person because support done right, you can really win or break a relationship. What grabbed your attention, Chris? I like the API consistency point. I thought it was a good point to bring up. And you know, when you're trying to construct an environment that is entirely reliant on API calls to get the job done, you're just going to want a cohesive ecosystem where API development is consistent, uniform, globally available. You know, it just it just de-risks what you're trying to do. And at the same time, I far too often see companies that just allow each business unit or development group to really hit any level of quality they deem fit for their APIs without any overarching strategy. So consistent APIs, it makes a lot of sense. Okay, Alex, let's move the conversation along to uh, people that are migrating to cloud. Everyone's got their journey to cloud and so on. And, and you hear these terms, we're going to move and improve, we're going to lift and shift, or, or maybe it's a dumpster fire, all commonly used terms to describe a cloud migration project. As you work with uh, customers, what sort of migrations are you seeing? I'm seeing tough migrations. None of them are easy. And they are fraught with question, you know, businesses and enterprises in particular are tearing themselves to shreds over questions like security and availability and cost. So you have all those technical questions on the one side. And on the other side, it's a wrenching process change for people. You know, we were talking earlier in the first section about my assertion that the cloud is the ultimate software-defined environment. And there's literally no other way to communicate with it other than through software. And think about the change that makes in the data center. You know, people who were rackers are now coders or have to become that. So it's really a tough, tough challenge. I'd love to drill into that a bit deeper because when I tend to focus on any kind of project, I feel like the, the most common struggles or pitfalls that myself or yourself as a technical professional encounter, especially with a migration project, either fall into one of two buckets. You know, it's a technical issue, which tend not to be the harder part of thing. And then there's the people and departmental conflicts, sometimes called layer eight problems that tend to be, oh, I don't know, like 90% of the, the pain that I suffer with these sorts of things. Is that common with the folks that you're working with? And do you have any pain points that you could highlight to maybe help people understand they're not alone in this? Yeah, I think that's a that, that's very well stated. The, the technical problems can be solved. It's bits, right? We know that. We know how to do that. The people problems, and especially when people are being threatened, those are the big ones. And what I see mostly is I see people, you know, well, let's step back 18 months, right? The cloud is insecure. Remember that? It took us as an industry, you know, two years to get over that. And now, you know, you don't hear that as much. You hear, you know, I have to implement PCI or I have to be HIPAA compliant, right? Which is back to your first point. That's bits. We know how to do that. And by the way, I loved your PCI podcast. I hope I get more of that from you guys. It was fantastic. Yeah, Paul was a great guest. Thanks for saying so. Yeah, it was really cool. So what I've discovered is that there's a lot of human emotion that goes into uh, defining these technical problems. And what I mean by that is that, you know, somebody 
who's threatened by the perceived changes that they have to make in the way they do things by the cloud will often hide behind something like the security debate or something like the cost debate. And so you get this mixture, as you were talking about, of people and technical problems, and they blur. And so it becomes very difficult to separate them. And so I, I think we're in a massive, you know, shift. That's what people who talk about DevOps are really talking about in my mind. You know, it's less about tools than about processing. This is going to be a multi-cloud question, kind of, sort of. So when you're dealing with people that are going through their cloud migrations, do you try to guide them towards one cloud versus another cloud based on their requirements? Or is it, yeah, you're going to do some of it over in Amazon, some of it in Azure, and maybe some of it you're going to keep on-premises? That's a fantastic question. So there are companies that have already made up their mind. I'll tell you about a company that I might be working with that has already decided that they want to use AWS. And so what they're going to do is they're going to design their infrastructure. They're, they're looking for an architectural plan to implement their infrastructure in AWS. And then they're going to take that to GCP and Azure and have those guys see if they can do better. So what does that really mean? right? That really means that they've made up their minds, but they want to hedge their bets. I don't think so. I think it means that there's a political thing going on inside this company, and this is the face-saving way out. I think that the number of entities who need more than one cloud platform is very limited. And I think it's basically government, maybe hospitals. I did a job for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, and they are officially multi-cloud. And you know, once you work inside a big government bureaucracy, you know, you can see why that's important and why that's necessary. But my take is, you know, if you're a big enterprise, you have two fantastic choices. The technical difference in my mind between AWS and Azure boils down to integrated identity. We can talk more about that if you'd like. But other than that, the workload doesn't matter. Azure does Linux beautifully. AWS does Windows beautifully. And my advice is neither of these companies are gonna disappear. These products are only gonna grow for the next decade. And you should pick one and minimize your costs and get really good at it. Okay, that's that was my follow-up question. So you are recommending stick with one because then you have operational consistency. You can focus on consolidating your costs and, and, and maximizing how you use that infrastructure to minimize your cost as you understand it better and better. Absolutely. My poster child, or the, the thing I want to throw darts at here in a multi-cloud discussion is something like Terraform, which I know is incredibly popular and everyone is all bent out of shape about how fantastic it is. But it isolates you from the underlying bare metal APIs, as I call them, which is, of course, a hugely mixed metaphor. But it isolates you from the bare metal APIs. And so you end up with people that know a language that's always going to be behind the uh, capabilities of the native cloud APIs. And you never get good at either. So you end up having more costs and being and, and taking less advantage of operational efficiency. Terraform as an abstraction layer, right, solves certain problems, but then you're kind of kept captive by Terraform in that setting. Exactly. And yeah. uh, what, do I want to be hostage to uh, HashiCorp or Microsoft or Amazon directly? And the answer is B, uh, AWS or Azure directly, because I'd rather be stuck with their API than someone else's. That's interesting, because you also brought up the topic of DevOps, and that's typically considered to be like the salt and pepper that you sprinkle on things to solve problems. I was wondering if you can go into that that one environment that you were talking about where multi-cloud was working, and it sounds like, I think it was a healthcare software company you were talking about, like that actually worked, but and then go into kind of like why 
a bit deeper, you think these things don't work. I understand if you're not going multi-cloud, then perhaps you don't want to use a tool that solves that like config management would potentially do. But it certainly kind of goes against the grain, if you will, to state that, you know, just work directly with the APIs versus using something abstraction layer. Uh, so I'd like to better understand that. Maybe the best way to explain it is that I was a, an assembly language developer many moons ago, and I just, you know, for me, uh, C was an abomination in some respects because it removed you from the hardware. That was supposed to be funny. I guess it didn't sound funny. <laughs> You know, it's the it's the closeness to the machine. I think that that really uh, I favor. Abstraction layers are cushions; they're fuzz between you and the thing you're trying to use. That's my assertion, and they require as much work and adoption and maintenance and work as the thing they're fuzzing you away from. So essentially the argument is, if you're going to learn a tool and you're deciding on an environment anyways, then the, why not just learn the environment versus the tool that would management? I think the only per perhaps counter argument to that would be, and just more interested in your thoughts and what people are doing than anything, would be uh, those that are looking to do on-prem and cloud and saying, well, if I learn Terraform to manage my on-prem environment and my cloud environment, then I am reducing the amount of tools I ultimately need to learn. Is that actually a reality? Because that's the argument I usually hear being presented. I'm a pure cloud guy. My solution to that is migrate your on-prem to stack or outpost. <laughs> okay. All right. And, and in that vein, I think it makes more sense when we're saying the future isn't that the data center necessarily goes away. It's that we're using a standard set of APIs across both of those because you're consuming someone else's infrastructure stack. Uh, therefore, just learn it anyways. Exactly. I am totally possessed with uh, Nirvana. And, you know, you know, we never achieve these things in, in full. But I'm possessed with the Nirvana that you could have a hybrid cloud that had a single consistent API for developers, operations, and administration. And, you know, Azure Stack and AWS Outpost, of course, we don't know a lot about AWS Outpost at this point, but we've all seen Azure Stack, and it does achieve that. It is real. It's something you could do today, and it feels more strategic to me than these interim sort of abstraction layers. Wow, my takeaway is pretty short. It's just be wary of folks using technical objections or things that sound like technical objections as a shield from having to deal with change head on. You know, just be aware that that happens. What's on your mind, Ethan? Well, with all the hype around multi-cloud and a lot of vendors telling us, everybody's going multi-cloud. I thought Alex's argument of why multi-cloud if there's no good reason was pretty interesting. And I, I took it that he argued there's enough feature parity between infrastructure as a service on either AWS or Azure that it kind of doesn't matter. Pick one and go. Have that consistent operational experience. Now, one thing we didn't talk about, Chris, was a platform as a service, and that could have a pretty significant bearing on your choice if you were to get into that. I don't know that it drives multi-cloud necessarily, but it certainly would weigh in on things. And, and of course, AWS is far ahead there. It's not exactly a toss-up choice to make. Man, I, I, I really like where this conversation is going because it's it's really challenging my thinking. And right, wrong, and indifferent, I think that as IT professionals, 
we should always be asking the question why so that we don't do something because that's the way it's always been done. And transitioning into this part of the discussion, I, I wanted to narrow down into tool sets. And I wanted to start with the story that I had had, or conversation I'd had with uh, a customer recently. And they were, they were saying, Chris, our, our CD pipeline is just weak. We don't really have one. It's only for one feature. We're trying to migrate to cloud. And he was kind of frustrated. He's like, we're using literally 15 to the 20 top DevOps tools, which, you know, putting aside the whole DevOps tools, weird wording. Is that a common scenario where people are just like, I need all the top tools and then magic will happen? Or is that more unique in this case? You know, as I, I listen to you ask that question, I'm wondering if there's like a billboard chart of top DevOps tools. Casey uh, <laughs> Kaysen, this morning, uh, for DevOps tools. Yeah. Jenkins moved up to number four. Uh, you know, I, I, I'm smiling because it, it's such a, a, a tough question to answer. I mean, DevOps is about process and tools are beside the point in many cases. Do you have a real agile process in place that can leverage the tools that you have? So take, for example, Jira. You know, I, I think I'm, the collective audience just groaned for a moment, but yeah, but if I'm telling you, if you talk to anybody about their DevOps process, they will say that they're all using Jira for user stories. And I have not seen a Jira implementation in a client in three years that was anything other than a cesspool. They're a mess. Uh, with one exception, I did do a job for a healthcare company that really walked the walk and talked the talk. And for them, tools were the last issue. I mean, they had a rigorous development process. A dev and ops worked together, sat together. They were in AWS. And I'm telling you, it can be done and it can be done well. And it's not dependent on tools. It's dependent on management. It comes from the top. And what really worries me about tool sets, you know, tool sets can be minor. My favorite tool today, you know, top of my billboard list is something called a Visual Studio Code. And what is it? It's just a modern text editor. It's and Notepad++. Thank you. Thank you. And so you could do a good DevOps process with Notepad++. You really don't need a whole lot of automation. You know, I mean, obviously you need a get back end and, you know, but you can get that in um, VSTS now as your DevOps, or you can get it in code commit, you know, building a pipeline is just mechanical, but it's all the processes around that, you know, who pushes the button? What, what are the criteria, for example, for something to make it into a release branch? What is your Git branching strategy? These are things that have nothing to do with the tools they have to do with your process. So are you arguing then that we shouldn't focus on a specific tool or language that we want to use, but instead look at like the, the use case and the outcome, and maybe we could use a bunch of tools, and you're saying that kind of like the tools don't matter, and the fashion and trends really are just indicative of, of, of fashion and trendiness and not implying usefulness or business value or anything like that? Exactly, Ethan. That's exactly it. My thinking is that you're using, and once again, I have to limit myself to the cloud systems I know, Azure and AWS. What are they? You have, uh, you, know, you have the Azure Resource Manager and you have AWS, and at the end of the day, they want JSON, or in AWS's case, is also YAML out of you. So you know what the end product is going to be, and it doesn't mm -hmm. matter 
what you're working with. If you're working with Glacier as an archive, it wants, you know, it wants a cloud formation template. If you're working with, you know, blobs in Azure, it wants an ARM template. The real question isn't that because because you can hand code that in, as Chris said, Notepad plus plus plus. Right? You, so you know what the destination is. What really matters is the process that gets you to that code. And so tool sets are sort of, you know, I mean, I like hammers with big claws and you like hammers with smaller claws. You know, it's almost beside the point. But people can focus on tools. They can't focus on processes. That's it. So there's thousands of people that are listening right now going, yeah, but I'm trying to get a job and I want to be able to put all these tools on my resume that I know how to use. And therefore, I follow the trends to know that I should be working with fill in the blank with whatever it is, Kubernetes or Jira or Jenkins or whatever, because they feel more employable because they know how to use that tool set. Uh, Processes, right. How do you put that on a resume? How do you package that as a skill set that you have? That's really hard. Well, I'm going to tell you that over the last three weeks, I've been helping my current client interview people for cloud architects. And I have seen resumes that are jammed, packed with keywords and very little experience. So let me tell the people who are listening that I think employers are getting wise to the keyword laden Taleo bait resume. And certainly, so I've gotten to the point now where if, you know, an agency or someone forwards me an 18-page resume, I refuse to read it. And so there's this keyword inflation that's gone on that people are still seeking. What I really think impresses employers and what impresses me when I'm talking to people is when they can convince me that their fingernails are dirty in the cloud. And what I mean by that is that they've actually worked with the thing. When someone says that, that they wrote a VSTS pipeline to deploy their Azure web apps, uh, which were designed as microservices in conjunction with the development team, I'm impressed. But it's not so much in that conversation about the the keywords or the jargon Mm -hmm. they work with. It's about them understanding the process. That's interesting. I I read an article this week that, uh, I forget the author, it was posted on Medium, but it made the argument that just because you go out and get a cloud certification, let's say, of which there are a bunch that you can get now, employers aren't necessarily impressed with that, that you got the certification, because if you are inexperienced, you are viewed as risky because there are so many moving parts and potential complexity in a cloud setup. They want someone who, as you said, has got their fingernails a bit dirty and has had some experience, which I guess it's another challenge. It's uh, difficult to find people with that skill set. And if you don't have that skill set, it's a catch-22 where it's difficult to get those skills. That's so true. My head is vibrating with the veracity of that statement. Uh, So I have to tell you that in the people I've talked to lately, those who feature their cloud certifications typically convince me that they were able to pass a test, but they don't have that sort of real world experience. And to people who are looking for real world experience, I would just offer this advice, which is get a, a free tier account at AWS or get a you know an Azure uh, $200 free account and learn how to do your thing, the thing you know in uh, Azure and AWS. Because nobody, me especially, can claim to know the entire cloud. It's too much. It's just too much. These services are so broad and so complex that you have to know what you have to know. And I'm kind of an ex-data center guy, so I know compute, storage, and network. But I don't know anything about IoT, and I don't pretend to. You know, the fact that you can answer correctly a couple of questions about IoT in the cloud 
on on a certification exam does not make you valuable. You know, if you could say to a potential employer, yeah, I downloaded from GitHub a sample CloudFormation template to define a VPC in AWS, and I modified it to use, let's say, a different uh, subnet layout because I wanted to see if I could do what we do in our data center, that would be impressive. That would impress me. So a common question that comes up from folks that listen to the show and just kind of in the ether is, when is it too many tools? Are there any sort of danger signs where it's like, okay, and and this kind of comes up because in most, well, in a lot of cases, I don't think people are really part of the company when the decisions were made. So they kind of inherit the dumpster fire and they're trying to make a case that this is a problem. There's just every department has a tool. Every process has a tool. All of a sudden, you know, you're 15 of the top 20 DevOps tools and you're like, oh my gosh, this is too many tools. So any danger signs or any arguments that you can help people make to detool the environment a bit? Yeah, wow. That was a layup question for me because I will say in response to that, there is JSON, only JSON, right? And if if you go back to my assertion, which, you know, a lot of people will disagree with, I get it. But if you go back to my assertion that the cloud, whether it's on-prem or in the provider's infrastructure, all it ingests and all it produces uh, from an administrative and architectural point of view is JSON, then if you can convince people in your organization that you can detool all you like and get back to what we've been calling Notepad++, mm. right? With a set of tools that, you know, make sense. Let's not be flippant about it. I mean, you need an editor, you know, modern editor, Adam or something like that. My preference is VS Code <laughs> that, you know, that has some assist because JSON is not easy, right? It's not easy. The people have to understand what these systems ingest, Right. Along with that idea is the fact, here's the business decision that's, that's frightening. If you accept, just for purposes of argument for a moment, if you accept that all these clouds take in is JSON that talks to their API, then every company on the planet that adopts these things is making the stickiest API decision they've ever made. Mm-hmm. Right. Because he who controls the API controls your data, your networking, your infrastructure, you know, your, your app infrastructure, your security, your identity platform. <laughs> it's really a, it's an earth shattering uh, decision. There's a lot of power in those curly braces, I tell you what. Oh, yeah. And when you get to the square brackets, baby, you're really- <laughs> So Alex, give me a comment on operators who are used to a certain set of tools and certain processes that they followed. Are are pipeline tools that we've been talking about all that different from what we've been using right along? No, no, of course not. Uh, And you're talking about uh, administration and management or development? Yeah, no, no. So all of these systems, and there I'm less doctrinaire. So, you know, if you are a Microsoft SCCM user, fine. You know, if you're a Palo Alto guy and you've got a Palo Alto appliance running in the cloud, that's fine too. You know, I'm not so concerned at the management or reporting level. You know, AWS has CloudWatch and Azure has Application Insights. Those things, you know, once you get down from what the cloud is and how we operate in the cloud and how we code for the cloud and how we define infrastructure for the cloud, then, you know, you're at the application level where things that we've been using for years make a lot of sense. Closing thought, Alex, let's put all this together. Have you worked with someone that was kind of in that role? Like, like Ethan, you know, he's the network monkey. We love him. I love him. (laughs) 
<laughs> but but obviously I'm I'm being a little snarky here. But but folks that you know I'm I'm definitely in the operations world. I'm using a few tools to get things done. But oh man, just the thought of DevOps and pipelines, like I'm terrified of that. I don't want to look at it at all. Do you have any stories where it's like not only did that happen, but there were some great outcomes that went with it? Yeah, I've got the success story, my poster child for this in a healthcare client that I worked with. It was an Azure shop. And they provide services for a number of healthcare insurance companies around the country. So, you know, the way that's represented in Azure is as separate tenants. So with separate tenants, everybody has their own virtual networks or VNets. And what I was able to do working with this one guy who really wanted to make this transition, you know, and that, that's something that happens in your brain. It's not something your management can make you do. You really have to want to make that transition. And this guy really wanted to do it. You know, I got him from being a sort of classic Cisco, a network administrator to someone who was deploying Azure ARM templates that I wrote that he and I worked together on to validate, to do everything that he needed done for each of the tenants, rather, in Azure. And, you know, deploying them from the command line on the Windows machine using PowerShell to do um, resource group deployment. Now, Alex, that story, that, that does not surprise me because networking people are so skilled and so deeply knowledgeable <laughs> on so many topics that making, how hard could that transition really even be, honestly? Truthfully, it's a tough transition. <laughs> it is a tough transition because, no, I, I mean, I, I catch the humor of the statement, but it is a tough transition for someone to go from, you know, UI sort of definition or a CLI to a make it so declarative environment, which is what JSON is, right? I mean, what he was doing instead of configuring things, he was just passing in JSON in the form mm -hmm. of ARM templates to Azure and letting it make it so. Yeah, and, and honestly, that is the transition that networking folks that have been stuck in that silo, which is lagged behind, are making now in, you know, whether they're leveraging cloud resources or just using modern techniques to provision their network infrastructure, doing it declaratively, using Ansible, using, you know, playbooks and so on. Uh, changing the way that that configuration work is done has been... Uh, a, a need for training, a need to rethink and relearn how you consider infrastructure and how you interact with it. So, so yeah, indeed, I'm sure it actually was a bit of a jump, even though we were we were making fun there along the way, because that's what Chris likes to do to me is uh, make me feel <laughs> old and uh, insecure in the skills that I have. Oh, and for those listening, totally, we're cool, and, ch and Ethan challenges me every day. <laughs> I'll let you determine what I mean by that, though. <laughs> so, <laughs> all right, so let's wrap things up. First off, Alex, thank you very much for joining the show today. If people want to you know, talk about this more with you on the interwebs or whatnot, where's a good place to reach out and have that conversation with you? So I'm on Twitter at Y-O-B-Y-O-T, and uh, my blog is Y-O-B-Y-O-T.com, and you can reach me at architect, A-R-C-H-I-T-E-C-T, at air11air11.com. Awesome. And that's it for today's edition of the Data Nuts podcast. If you're a social creature, you can follow me at Chris Wall on Twitter or my blog, wallnetwork.com. And my delightful friend Ethan is at EC Banks on Twitter and blogging over at packetpushers.net. For more of our Data Nuts shows about infrastructure and engineering, do a nosedive down the rabbit hole that is packetpushers.net. Woo! You'll find the Data Nuts talking about containers, certifications, conferences, PowerShell, cloud, you name it, it's there. And until then, may your server lights blink, your fingernails be dirty from the cloud, and your cables be cleanly managed.
You're saying we don't need to switch all of our tooling over to Microsoft Word to edit JSON files? I just want to be clear. Because <laughs> I feel like Clippy could really make a strong resurgence in that. Yeah, Clippy, yeah if Clippy came back, that would, be, that would be a moment, wouldn't it? Thank you.